Let me begin uh, simply with a word of thanks um, to Alec, to Molly, uh, to Catherine, to the session, uh, and to all of you for the invitation to be here this morning and to uh, share with you uh, in worship of the living God who draws us together uh, across time and across space and invites us into the transforming power of God's love and justice. It's, it's an honor to be here uh, to preach. It's something that I get to do far less in Scotland than I got to do in Richmond. It's something that I miss. Uh, so I'm very grateful for the invitation. Uh, it's also wonderful to be back in Richmond, a place uh, that uh, means a great deal to, to me uh, and to my family. Uh, and to be able to worship with all of you uh, is, again, a great gift and an honor. Our second reading is from the Gospel according to Luke, verse 19, 1 through 10. Hear now the word of the Lord. He entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not see because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to that place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and he was happy to welcome him. But all who saw began to grumble and said, He has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there, and he said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, who is our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Traveling with Jesus on his fateful trip back to Jerusalem, we now pass that other famous biblical city, Jericho. Jericho with memories of Joshua fighting the battle, walls tumbling, prostitutes saving, promised lands entered. In Jericho, what many consider the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world, we now meet that other memorable story, that of Zacchaeus and the sycamore tree. For those of you with a long history in the church, or those of you with young children, the reference to Zacchaeus might bring a cute little melody into your head. Something about a wee little man who climbed up into a sycamore tree and how Jesus pulled him down from his hiding place 
and ate with him. As a child, it was always a great song with a catchy tune. And as the oldest of three brothers, we loved it because we now had biblical justification for tree climbing and fort building. (laughs) But mom, we were just looking for Jesus. While this story might seem benign, short man climbs a tree. Jesus sees him, stays at his house. Jesus loves everyone, even short people. Our morning text is much more controversial than my daughter's children's Bible or a Sunday school song may make it sound. You see, Jesus isn't, I mean, Zacchaeus isn't just a cute little man who couldn't climb high enough to see Jesus, and so he climbs a tree. No, he was the man with the new money, the slick back hair, the too nice of clothes, the constant obsessing name-dropping. And everybody knew where he got his money, and it wasn't exactly kosher. Bribes heel. Deals there. He had the mayor in his pocket and the colonial government whispering in his ear. And if all of that dishonest wealth wasn't bad enough, his entire career was made on a contract that Zacchaeus had made with his people's arch enemies. Business took precedent over loyalty, money over nation. No, he wasn't just small in height, a wee little man. The text says he was small in stature small in respect, small in morals. And in fact, he was so small that he did everything he could to be seen, to be known, to be loved. And the harder he tried, the more he was hated, the more good church-going folks like you and me ignored him. The text tells us that Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector. Apologies to any IRS agents in the room. But tax collectors, whether in the UK or the US, whether in ancient times or today, are rarely the most popular people at the party. But back in the first century, when Rome ruled the known world, they were even more despised. The Roman model for tax collection was to farm out the duties to the highest local bidder. The tax collector would then take taxes from the locals to pay Rome and then charge more to pay for himself. In the Roman province of Palestine, Jericho was actually a plush job. The city sits, then as it does now, at the intersection of two major routes. One going from west to east or east to west from the sea, what is it? what is present-day Tel Aviv, up the mountain to Jerusalem, down the mountain to Jericho, and out into the desert of what is then Philadelphia, or today Amman, Jordan, and out into Iraq. It also runs north and south on the River Jordan, which would take you to Damascus, and up into what is now Turkey, and down into the Arabian Peninsula, the Red Sea, and Yemen. There was a lot of money to be made. 
in Jericho, and Zacchaeus wasn't afraid to collect, to find ways to increase his income. And for the Jewish community, community, Zacchaeus was an outsider, a turncoat, a traitor, someone that no one liked and no one thought could be trusted. And so no matter how many Shabbat dinners he tried to host, no right-minded, Torah-observing Jew would be caught dead singing songs to the Lord or raising a glass at Zacchaeus' table. And the Roman, the Roman community probably thought of him simply as hired help. And no matter how much he tried to ingratiate himself to the soldiers and the emperor and the regents, he was never going to be a true Roman citizen, one of us. No matter how many parties he threw, no Roman officer would really take him seriously as a peer. And then, this Jesus, this roaming rabbi from up north, this could-be Messiah and king who has been talking about God's kingdom and about justice and mercy in the poor, about God's hospitality and love, is rumored to be coming to town. And so Zacchaeus just has to see. Maybe there's something about the stories and the rumors that have trickled down the Jordanian Valley that has Zacchaeus hoping and wondering. Or maybe if you're cynical like me, he's just trying to collect a text. Text doesn't actually say why he wanted to see him. Popular rabbi, hordes of followers. Sounds like a great payday to me. So he runs down Main Street, but the crowds move this way and then they move that way just to make sure that Zacchaeus couldn't see, couldn't get a seat, wouldn't be welcome. Not for this Jesus. He was promising the restoration of Israel, the return of God of Yahweh's rule, and that couldn't include a traitor like Zacchaeus, could it? He had offered up his birthright as a son of Abraham to the throne of Caesar. No amount of money could buy that back. But Zacchaeus runs ahead, tries to get ahead of the crowd to find a place to see who this Jesus is, but no matter how much he works, no matter how much he struggles, he just can't get through the crowd. And as he's jostling for position, he sees that one sycamore tree in the desert oasis town, the one that only kids climb. And forgetting all social cues about what is appropriate or proper or right, all of his attempts to earn his way back into the social life of that city through his wealth, he hikes up his tunic and he climbs a tree. It's a ridiculous image. Grown man, powerful man, climbing a tree. But just then, as he was trying to see who this Jesus is, the most miraculous thing happens. Jesus sees Zacchaeus. Jesus sees him and names him as who he is. And not only that, 
Jesus calls him out of the tree and right down into the crowd that blocked him and says, tonight, I'm eating and staying at your house. I lived for over two years in the Middle East. More specifically, in the Holy Land itself, just about 20 miles from Jericho. Even today, there are social cues. Who you eat with matters a great deal. It says a great deal about your standing in the community. We Americans like to think this isn't the case for us, but... If you're new to a village or even to a city, there is an order of greetings that you're supposed to go to. If you want to start a new project or a new church or a new mosque or a new hospital in the city, you need to go through the right families. Nothing like that happens here in Richmond. Talk to the right sheikh or the right rabbi or the right priest. Drink a lot of tea, have a lot of coffee, eat more food than you can imagine all with the right people in the right way, in the right order, if you really want to ever be considered a friend and an insider. So you understand the scandal of it, don't you? And the crowd, not unlike what you or I might have done, cries out in rebellion. Don't you know about him, Jesus? Maybe he doesn't know. He's new to town. He just saw the guy up on a tree. He must not know the story. Don't you know he's a crook, a traitor, a sleazeball? God's kingdom might be for us, the religious, the righteous. And hey, we're, we're good readers of the biblical text. We know and can even tolerate the poor, the lame, the repressed, the widow, the orphan. But not him. Can't be for him. You see, Jesus is supposed to come over to dinner at the theological faculty member's house, the one who teaches at the university or the seminary. Or maybe the session of the Presbyterian Church on Fifth Avenue. Or to visit that beautiful house in the fan that has just been featured in those design magazines after it was restored both to its modern glory and in keeping with its 1890 row house design. He doesn't go there goes to his house. And in the midst of all of their grumbling, they're grumbling about God's grace, are grumbling about God's grace. Zacchaeus gives away half his money and promises to restore all that he's stolen. I never thought about this until recently, but I've been questioning why he gives his money back. Where does that come from? The text is so dramatic. Is it because he feels shamed by the crowd? They're grumbling. It shamed him into giving? It might be, but the text doesn't say, and I don't think so. If the grumbling of other people had been what transformed Zacchaeus into a right relationship with them, he would have given the money back years ago. People are always grumbling about paying taxes. If it was shame or guilt that made Zacchaeus change, why hadn't this already happened? 
I've come to think that the reason Zacchaeus gives the money back is because he's experienced the judgment of God's grace. In the gaze of divine grace, Zacchaeus' life, our lives are claimed and forgiven. Made whether tax collectors like Zacchaeus, good church-going folks, or Gentiles, sons and daughters of Abraham. And all of this is just made possible because of God's pursuing and relentless welcome. Made flesh in Jesus, taught in parables, enacted in this meal, here and now, then and there. And in the face of that kind of radical generosity, Zacchaeus finds his life, his priorities, his heart, his relationship to money and status and power transformed. What we see happening in Zacchaeus is a life transformed not because of moralistic accusations or the latest hashtag. I'm a Twitter user. Well-meaning, high-minded, important social justice calls to be moral. No, none of that transforms him. What transforms him is an intimate encounter with Jesus. It's that kind of experience that you might have of moral or personal growth when you're around a person or a community that draws the best out of you, that makes you desire to be a more kind, a more charitable, a more just person or church. Not because that person judges you, but because that person invites you in a kind of a beautiful way of life that draws a life lived otherwise that you've longed for deeply out of you. I'm a theologian, so here's our theological lesson for the day. The Reformed tradition that we're from, that's part of this Presbyterian legacy, has a name for this. We call it, following John Calvin, the third use of the law. The first use of the law is simply to judge sinners. You may have heard this before. The law judges you and calls you to repent. The second is that we need the law essentially to keep social order. You've probably heard of this one too. But Calvin actually says that the true meaning of the law, what God intended, what we hear sung in the Psalms, is that the law is meant by the power of the Holy Spirit to draw us into a beautiful way of life. That the law is tended to be our tutor and our guide. I think this is what we see happening in Zacchaeus. Once he has encountered this radical forgiveness in Jesus Christ, his identity, our identity, is freed up, even compelled to live likewise. To mirror, however dimly and faintly, the very generous, radical welcome of God. It would be good and well to end there. But lest we forget the crowds and their grumbling about grace. It is this grumbling that we hear time and time again in our politics, both in the U.S., and in the UK, where I now live, it's, it's actually impossible to imagine the 2016 presidential election or the Brexit campaign without all of the grumbling. 
grumbling about immigrants that don't deserve the same schooling or jobs or welcome as citizens, grumbling about Muslims that don't deserve the same religious freedom as we Christians or secularists, grumbling about why we have to pay for the medical care of others, grumbling about this or that. And while it's easy, and it maybe even has a time of, or a place, to point fingers at other political parties and their grumbling, particularly when the grumbling seems to be directed against visions of mercy and justice for those excluded, the Zacchaeus story doesn't let me off the hook. For I'm not immune to my own grumbling, my own tendency to stand in the crowd and grumble about God. To grumble and complain when the call to justice starts to change my own neighborhood, or my own children's school, or my own wallet. It's one thing to vote for justice, it's another thing to have it brought near into my house. And so I grumble. But not just that. I have always been the big brother in the parable of the prodigal son. I have always been that worker that showed up at nine and worked the whole day only to find that that latecomer got paid the same as me. Maybe some of you are like that. Good church-going folks, so accustomed to grace prayers of forgiveness that we miss out on the scandal of what the gospel proclaims. That grace is scandalous. That Zacchaeus didn't deserve it. There's no story that I know that illustrates the scandal of grace more than the Scottish government's decision to release Abdul Basid al-Makhri, the one man convicted of the Lockerbie bombing. If you don't remember... In, 1990, in 1988, the bombing of a Pan Am jet killed all 250 people on board and 11 more people on the ground in the city of Lockerbie in the southern part of Scotland. Years later, and after a complex international trial, a Libyan who probably was involved but likely wasn't at the center of the story was convicted and jailed in Scotland. He had a life sentence. Decades later, in the year 2009, Al-Maghri was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Justice has finally come to him. But the Scottish legal system I'm finding is quite odd. It has its own laws, even distinct from England and Wales. And it made the decision to offer him what's called compassionate release, to send him back to Libya was and remains a scandalous decision. You can look it up. It seems just beyond the pale. But let me quote the decision of the Scottish Justice Secretary, Kenny McCaskill, at length, of why he decided to make this decision. Those of us who have been bereaved cannot be expected to forget, let alone forgive. Their pains run deep and their wounds remain. However, Mr. Al-Maghri faces a higher sentence imposed by a higher power, is one that no court, 
in any jurisdiction, in any land, could revoke or overrule. It is terminal, final, irrevocable. He is going to die. In Scotland, we are a people who pride ourselves on our humanity. It is viewed as a defining characteristic of Scotland and the Scottish people. The acts of atrocities and outrage cannot and should not be a basis for losing sight of who we are, the values we seek to uphold, and the faith and beliefs for generations that we have sought to live by. Mr. Al-Maghri did not show his victims any comfort or compassion. They were not allowed to return home to die, to the bosoms of their family, to seek out their lives. No compassion was shown by him. But that alone is not a reason for us to deny the compassion to him and to his family that he denied to us. Our justice system demands that judgment be imposed, but compassion be made available. Our beliefs dictate that justice be served, but mercy shown. Compassion and mercy are about upholding the beliefs that we seek to live by, remaining true to who we are, no matter the severity of the provocation. To free and let die someone who has done such atrocities is something worth grumbling about. It is not justice in any sense that we're used to. It does not win any campaigns. Regardless of your feelings about the decision of Scotland, and there were many, most who complained, and I'm sure the real politics that were involved in backroom door deals The story and the words that justify it paints in such vivid terms something of both the power and the social scandal that the gospel is meant to entail. You see, we are a people so deeply invested, often for the best of reasons, of judging people and their values on the calculus of their status and their works and how well they fit. Grace of the type shown by the Scottish government but all the more so of the type so rooted and central to the Christian story is a, as Paul said, a scandal. It should, it does, elicit grumbling. And yet, to turn back to the biblical text itself, Jesus is clear. Today, salvation came to this house. For Jesus did not come to save proper church folks convinced of our own purity or good citizens worried about the degradation of politics or those that vote in the right way or theologians sure of our own intellect or those of the right religion or race or housing status. No, it says that Jesus came to seek and save the lost, to invite everyone to this table, and to invite people to this table so that they could bring this table into the world, into the world where citizens and immigrants are divided, into a world 
marked by so much grumbling? Will we respond to the radical judgment of grace with lives filled with generosity like that despicable Zacchaeus? Or will we cling to our own judgments, our moral high grounds, and, and go, go away from God's grace grumbling? Amen.